<laughs> Pardon me? Oh, did you get that guy? Yeah. Well done. Keep doing this, and it's going to keep doing the same thing. And pardon me. No. I just pulled it out of the machine at my office. Pardon me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. We could try that. We could try anything. I'll put it in another hole. See if that makes a difference. All right, now let's try it. Maybe I didn't like that one. What the hell's that doing? What's that do? That does that, huh? All right, let's, uh, where was I here? Well done. When in doubt, turn it off. Okay. Hey, I got that far. That's pretty good. Okay, we're just going to do a little bit today. We're going to clean up the joints. We were down at, uh, where were we? we? We're up here. We did this one. We've done the elbow. We took a look at, um, where were we here? 
Oh, I see. Oh, oh okay. We took a look at the elbow joint. We took a look at the fibrous capsule that went around the elbow and the front and the back. Basically, we're going to follow the design. We mentioned before, we just follow the design of the articular cartilage, just a little bit here, just a little bit before, down here, just a little bit after. So we'll come over top of the coronoid fossa, over top of the radial fossa, come down the side onto the annular ligament, come up over the edge of the coronoid process of the ulna here, Reinforce the medial side, reinforce the lateral side with medial and lateral collateral ligaments of the elbow. Looking on the back surface, the only thing we really need to do is pick up the attachment as it goes around the olecranon and follow that as it goes around the olecranon, uh, the uh, fibrous capsule coming around here. Reinforce the medial side, reinforce the lateral side to get medial and collateral ligaments because the joint was a hinge joint. And as well, then, we also had the uh, annular ligament that was going around the head of the radius to keep the head of the radius in the, uh, in the radial fossa of the ulna. And we've looked at that kind of considering. And we've considered the fact that the front and the back part of the capsule are relatively thin to allow for that movement to occur. Right? And now we go down, and if we keep going down, we looked at those. Interosseous membrane will be a membrane between the radius and the ulna. It's a type of joint. It's a fibrous connection between the two bones. You notice that the Fibers of the interosseous membrane tend to go downward and a little bit medial. Will give us a, a, a connection between the radius and the ulna. Will also give us a surface area for muscle attachment. We use the interosseous membrane for muscle attachment. We have a hole in it down here that's going to allow the anterior interosseous artery we mentioned. We'll come down here, we'll go through that opening in here, and then go around to the backside of the, uh, uh, of the hand, the dorsal surface of the hand. And when we were looking at that radial distribution down there, we picked up uh, the uh, contribution of the anterior interosseous as it poked through that hole and connected with the arterial supply on the back of the hand. So that was, that's what that hole is used for. And then we have the, the design of the interosseous membrane there. Then we need to put the radius and the ulna together down at the, at the distal end. And let's see, that's not a bad one. Once again, this one will show you the interosseous membrane between the radius and the ulna. Uh, there is a couple of things we need to look at. There will be a ligament attachment between the radius and the ulna, front and back. And this picture only will show the front, the anterior component of it coming back this way. Uh, and there's a fibrous capsule that goes around the joint between the radius and the ulna. The other thing about this joint, uh, will, and, the, and the fibrous capsule will be lined with synovial membrane. It's going to be a synovial, a synovial joint between the radius and the ulna. The only other thing that is kind of different about this one is that there will be a, a, a cartilaginous disc, fibrocartilage articular disc here that really runs. It's kind of triangular in its design. Maybe the next one will show a little better. Okay. Here we're looking at it from an inferior view here. Here's my triangular articulating disc here. Runs from, you could describe it as running from the edges of the ulnar notch of the radius over to the styloid process of the radius. So what that's going to do is increase that surface area between the radius and the carpal bones. Right? So now we have here a facet on the underside of the radius for the scaphoid bone. We'll come over here and have a facet on the underside of the radius for the lunate bone, the next one over. And then we need a little bit of a space here for the articulation with the triquetral bone over here. And that's going to then articulate with this triangular fibrocartilage disc that joins the radius to the ulna. And once again, we'll thicken the front portion here and we'll thicken the back portion here 
between the radius and the ulna. So this, on the anterior surface coming across like this, is the same thing on this picture as this, right? We're looking across that way. The joint is a pivot joint, because when you with supinate and pronate, you have to roll the radius around, and it's going to roll around that joint between uh, where the radius and the ulna come together, the ulna then fitting into that ulnar notch on the bottom, on the back surface of the, of the radius. Joint capsule as well has a little bit of redundancy. You ha you ha when you've got movement in a, in a joint, you have to have a little bit of redundancy in the capsule, otherwise the, it won't allow for movement to occur. So you can see that we have a little bit of the capsule kind of bellying up in here. And once again, that will be synovial membrane line coming up this way, a little bit of redundancy in the capsule. And then you can think about it, if you have to take the radius and do this, you have to have a little bit of give to the capsule in order for that movement to, to be achieved. Okay. So that was, that's a basic look at the design then of the radius and the ulna. It's a synovial joint. It'll have a reinforcing of the capsule on the front and back. It has a little bit of redundancy coming back this way. And it has an articulating disc, kind of triangular in shape, with the point of the triangle attached to the styloid process of the ulna and the base of the triangle coming back and attaching to either side of the uh, ulnar notch on, on the radius. That's our design of the, the radial, distal radial ulnar articulation coming around that way. Okay. Then, uh, we need to then have a number of different joints are going to come together. Whoops. Come together. So here's a, here's a look at the same thing. The radius and the ulna, and that are kind of redundancy of the capsule coming this way and the articulating disc coming this way. And then the radius will articulate with the scaphoid and the lunate. And the triquetral over here is going to make a little bit of articulation with that articulating disc that we had coming over this way. Okay, now, we need to then have uh, a fibrous capsule going around the joint between the radius and the carpal bones, the radiocarpal articulation. And for the most part, the front part of it, the anterior part, and the dorsal part of that capsule will be relatively thin and, and, uh, and not provide much in the way of resistance. But what we need to do then is reinforce over here on the lateral side and reinforce over here on the medial side uh, the medial and lateral parts to the capsule because the wrist joint basically wants to go flexing and extending. It can adduct and abduct, but its major movement will be flexing and extending. So we're going to reinforce over here on the lateral side, coming from the styloid process of the radius and then attaching onto the scaphoid bone. Over here, we're going to establish then a radial collateral or lateral collateral ligament of the wrist joint. And over here on the other side, coming from the ulna and attaching onto the triquetral bone and the pisiform bone, because the pisiform bone is going to be sitting on top of the triquetral, we'll establish on over on this side a ulnar collateral or medial collateral ligament of the wrist joint. The rest of it, the front part of the capsule and the back part of the capsule, as I mentioned, relatively thin. Uh, and I tried to, let's see if I can find the one I want for that one. Um, somewhere back here. Yeah, there's one that gives you the idea. Most of the, this is an anterior view. Most of the front of the capsule, the fiber direction is going to be mainly uh, from the thumb side over to the little finger side, from lateral to medial, coming across the palm this way, relatively thin. Uh, not much in the way to describe, but we'll reinforce the medial side and we'll, medial side, and we'll reinforce the lateral side to give us the medial and lateral collaterals or radial and, and ulnar collateral ligaments of the wrist joint. 
And I tried other ways of, there's another try at giving you the design and the, the, the direction of the fibrous capsule, at least on the Palmer side, coming down and more medially this way. And as we mentioned, not, not much in the way to describe and reinforcing either side here. This one does have the pisiform bone sitting on top of the triquetral bone. And keep in mind, remember, with the pisiform bone, we had the tendon of the flexor carpi ulnaris would embed its, would have the pisiform bone embedded in its tendon. That would be the, and then by means of a continuation, we would then have a pisohamate ligament, which would allow us then to come to the, to the uh, hamate bone. And by also by an extension, we had the extension down to the base of the metacarpal of your, of, of your fifth finger. Well, this gives you then an idea on the, basic the idea on the radial carpal articulation. There was a look at that continuation of the flexor carpi ulnaris. Pisiform bone would be embedded in its tendon, but the pisohamate ligament continue forward, and the, the uh, continue forward over to the metacarpal as well, coming along that way. So we talked about that a little bit when we looked at the flexor uh, carpi ulnaris. And uh, the movements that you'll get at the wrist will, will, will be uh, flexing and extending. You'll notice that we, we will have a fairly good attachment between the scaphoid and the lunate here. And we'll have a very good, strong attachment between the lunate and the triquetral. So what that's going to give us is the, these three bones in that uh, proximal row will give us a good sturdy foundation on the carpal side. So fairly good connection between scaphoid and lunate, fairly good one between lunate and triquetral gives us this, this, re this surface here. And once again, what the, the underside of the radius here would be articular cartilage, and there would be articular cartilage lining the carpal bones here. And that's a synovial joint, which would have a synovial membrane going around it. Okay. The other thing you notice here, I did, and it doesn't do any good to look at each and every individual little ligament that joins each and every little carpal bone. We're not going to do that. But you can notice that the carpal bones are linked together, and there might be a little bit of gliding between carpal bones, a little bit of movement. But you will notice between the proximal row and the distal row here, we have a significant little gap. That's the mid-carpal joint between the proximal and distal row of the, of the carpal bones here. And we are going to get movement at that joint, a little bit more significant movement at the mid-carpal or transverse carpal joint. Okay. So that when we need to do the, when we're looking at the movements of flexing and extending at that radial carpal joint, in the movement of flexing, you'll get movement at the, at the radius, at the radius articulating with the carpal bone, the scaphoid lunate, but you'll also get movement at that mid-carpal joint. Probably more movement will can be attributed to the movement at the mid-carpal joint in flexing than would be attributed to the radiocarpal joint. When you go back into extending, you still get movement at both of those different joints, but more of the movement would be attributed to the radiocarpal and a little less would be attributed to the mid-carpal joint. So when you're doing the flexing and extending of your wrist, you're not only doing that movement here at the radiocarpal joint, but you're also doing that movement at the mid-carpal joint. And for flexing, a little bit more of that range of movement that you've got would be attributed to the mid-carpal and extending, going the opposite way, a little bit more of the movement would be attributed to the radiocarpal joint. 
And once again, you'll notice that we have a series of ligaments that join the carpal bones together here. I didn't talk about them very specifically. Some even suggest that one simple way to do it, let's see if I put a picture on that one. And one simple way to do it would be, let's see if I have another one, no I don't, would be if you took the capitate bone, if you took the middle one, and then just radiated ligaments out from the capitate bone, that's somewhat of a description of how these carpal bones are linked together. But I think, you know, I, in point of fact, I really like this one a little bit better. It takes a very simplistic look at how we're going to link the carpal bones together, but still maintain between the proximal row and the distal row that little bit of a gap, that mid-carpal joint in that fashion. Okay? Then, if we take a look at the design of the uh, metacarpals articulating with the carpal bones, you'll notice over here we're going to have the fourth and the fifth um, metacarpals will articulate with the hamate bone. And we're going to have the third metacarpal articulating with the capitate bone, which isn't what it says in the book, is it? Gotta look at the book. The cap, I'm gonna, you, you have to change that. Used to be that I thought um, and a reasonable description would be that the capitate bone embedded in a little bit of a cup that would have been designed and, and generated by the trapezium, the trapezoid, and the capitate. But in fact, if you look at the capitate and the capitate bone lines directly up with the third metacarpal. So the third metacarpal will have it going directly and articulating with the capitate bone. But it, in the book it says it articulates with a little bit of a cavity generated by a couple of the carpal bones. So I suggest that you change that to indicate that the capitate bone and the third metacarpal line up with each other. You see where it says that? Nah, you don't see Okay, um, where did it go? See where it says carpal metacarpal joint? Maybe oh, two-thirds of the way down? And then it says middle? Okay, so the third metacarpal articulates with the capitate bone by itself. It doesn't articulate in that little pocket. Now that being said, if we go to the look at the second metacarpal, it does articulate with a little pocket that's generated by the trapezium, the trapezoid, and the capitate. It kind of sits in this little pocket here. But the third one lines itself up directly with the capitate bone. The second one lines itself up with that little pocket. And of course, the first one is going to line itself up specifically with the trapezium. That's the, the uh, saddle-shaped joint that we had that would allow the thumb to move for flexing and extending and abducting and adducting. So the first metacarpal will line up with the trapezium, and that's a specific joint that allowed for a lot of freedom of movement. The second metacarpal will line up with this little pocket generated by the trapezium, trapezoid, and capitate. The third will line up with the capitate all by itself, and the fourth and fifth line up with the hamate. Okay. And when we're looking at movements here, between the, carp the uh, carpal and metacarpal of your thumb, as we mentioned, a lot of movement, allowing to flex the thumb, move it across the palm of your hand, extend your thumb, move it back the opposite way, abduct your thumb by moving it away from the palm of the hand, and adduct your thumb by bringing it in back in towards the palm of the hand, and opposing by going across and rolling the thumb across to the other digits. Yes. Right. Yes. 
Uh, no. Um, yeah, okay. Yes, I'm saying that the capitate bone articul articulates with the third metacarpal by itself. Uh, just that the second, it doesn't even say second here, does it? The second articulates with, okay, do it this way. All right, do it this way. Mid, you got middle, right, where it says capitate trape, trapezoid trapezium? Okay, scratch out third and put second. Then, if you're, yeah, you're correct, then you'll need a, a, a fourth category, third metacarpal capitate. Okay. Sure. Somewhere you need to know that the, the third metacarpal articulates with the capitate bone, and the second articulates with that pocket. Okay. First metacarpal trapezium, second metacarpal the pocket, third metacarpal the capitate, fourth and fifth the hamate. Okay? So you end up with four instead of three. You're right. Okay. Got it? Are we all right? Yes? Yeah? Good enough? Okay. Yep? All right. So we know that we have a lot of movement here between the thumb and the trapezium. And fundamentally, we will get virtually no movement here at, for the second, very, and no movement for the third. They all, they all, they're relatively stationary between the carpal and the metacarpal. As you start to drift a little bit further over to the fourth and to the fifth, you get a little bit of movement between the carpal and the metacarpal. So that when you want to take your thumb and you want to roll it across the palm of your hand to oppose your little finger, your little finger, remember, does have an opponent's digiti minimi, which tries to take the metacarpal of your little finger and roll it so that you can come and oppose your thumb. If you want to be very, very correct on it, the second and the third, none. The fourth, little. The fifth, you might get a little bit. The fifth metacarpal, you'll get more movement than you'll get out of two, three, and four because you do get the opportunity to roll the little, the little finger metacarpal around a little bit. Clearly, a, a significant movement at the joint between the, the, car, the trapezium and the thumb, metacarpal of your thumb here. Okay. And you'll notice that these metacarpals are joined together by interosseous ligaments that join the meta, metacarpals together here, come across this way. Okay. So now we've got the carpals and we've got them articulating with the metacarpals. Now we need the metacarpals articulating with the first phalanx of each of your. And there's a look at that design. We have a metacarpal here and we have the proximal phalanx of, your th of a finger here. Okay, now. That's going to be, this will be a synovial joint. It'll have a fibrous capsule around it. The top, and the, the top and the bottom of the capsule relatively thin. 
We're going to reinforce on either side, so we'll have collateral ligaments in this joint. The joint will be uh, oval in shape between the metacarpal and the first phalanx, not your thumb, but the other ones. And that's going to allow then for us to be able to flex. That would be then uh, the big knuckle. And it's also then because of the shape of the articulation between the two bones, it's going to allow us then to adduct and abduct because it's got, we have an oval uh, um, articulation. We're going to reinforce the medial side. We'll reinforce the lateral side because there's a fibrous capsule that goes around it and it'll be lined with a synovial membrane. And we're going to be able then to, to um, flex and extend and we're also going to be able to move side to side. We're going to be able to adduct and abduct at the metacarpal phalangeal joint. And you'll also notice that on the Palmer side, uh, there's another pic same picture. On the Palmer side, we're going to have a thickening of the capsule called the Palmer plate, very tightly attached to the proximal phalanx of the, of the digit, fairly loosely attached to the distal end of the metacarpal. So we're going to get a Palmer plate at the metacarpal phalangeal joint to help reinforce on the Palmer side that those articulations. And you'll also notice that those palmar plates are joined by this deep transverse ligament that comes across and joins these four fingers together. Obviously not your thumb, but these four fingers are joined by a, what's known as a deep transverse ligament that comes across, joins the palmar plates together. And movement, we said, at this particular location will be flexing and extending and abducting and adducting. And you can do that because of the shape of the uh, two ends of the bone. They're oval. They'll allow for that movement in those two directions. Okay. Then if we go back and take a look at the, the interphalangeal one here and interphalangeal one here, once again, you'll notice that the, on the palmar side, the capsule is reinforced by a palmar plate sometimes called a volar plate, but palmar plate's easier to remember. Palmar plate here and a palmar plate here. The same idea um, at these articulations and that we have a fibrous capsule which will go around the interphalangeal joint. Uh, there'll be thickening of the capsule on the medial and lateral sides to give it medial and lateral support. The, the top and the bottom of the capsule will be relatively thin in order to allow for movement. And because of the shape of the bones, the articulation ends of the, the uh, at these interphalangeal joints, all we're going to get at those joints will be flexing and extending. You, you don't get the movement back and forth. That's restricted to the metacarpal phalangeal joint because of the oval shape of the articulating ends. So we end up here with a palmar plate and a palmar plate. Even on the thumb, you get the same thing, but it's not shown. And uh, medial and lateral collateral ligaments to uh, strengthen the lateral and medial sides and we get flexing and extending at, that, at those articulations around that way. And that was another look I had at uh, giving the idea of the uh, metacarpophalangeal articulation, the collateral ligament coming across this way. Here's my extensor tendon coming across the top, and my palmar plate coming this way. You notice it's fairly tightly attached to the end of the proximal phalanx fairly loosely attached here to the to the metacarpal. You have to have it loose, otherwise you, you won't be able to then bend or flex your finger. The other thing on this one that they, sh they tried to indicate was that, I'm not sure if it shows, yeah, I guess it does show very well. When, you're, when the metacarpal phalangeal joint is in this position, the collateral ligaments are fairly loose. 
when you flex, the collateral ligaments become tight. That's why in this position, you can adduct and abduct your fingers. But if you make a fist, you can't do it. Because when you make a fist, you're tightening up those collateral ligaments, and they won't allow the movement between the metacarpal and the, and the first phalanx in order to adduct and abduct. And that's what they're trying to show here as well. And they're also showing that there's some give or some pullback on that palmar plate in order to allow for that flexing to occur. Because it's fairly loose, see a little bit redundancy here? Fairly loosely attached, which is going to then allow for the flexing movement to occur. And this one we looked at before when we were describing the movements of the lumbrical muscles and the, and the interosseous muscles. And once again, you'll see the same kind of thing. There's the palmar plate, and there's the deep transverse ligament that's going to go across uh, at the head of the um, metacarpal coming across this way. And you notice the lumbrical muscles coming up this way from the tendon of the flexor digitorum uh, profundus muscle will come up and go underneath the deep transverse ligament and attach onto the dorsal expansion, whereas the interossei muscles coming from the metacarpals themselves, when they come across and run into the dorsal expansion, they go on the top side of the deep transverse ligament. So there's a difference in the direction and the orientation of the lumbrical muscle versus the interossei muscle in coming and attaching onto that uh, dorsal expansion on the back of the finger. Okay. And uh, well, the only other thing, well, one other thing I was going to mention was just a little side thing, was if you look at here, you can understand when you take a look at this configuration that when you adduct your wrist, move it inward, you have a bigger range of movement than when you abduct your wrist, move it outward. When you're moving it outward, the styloid process of the radius bumps against the scaphoid bone, and that kind of limits the amount of range you get in abducting. You have a bigger range of movement if you want to adduct and move the wrist inward this way. Okay. And the other thing was, that's uh, just a looking at the same thing. Uh, uh. Go back and take oh, we had a couple of, we had some sesamoid bones that were at the head of the, uh, of the first metacarpal. And we had running, we had the tendons of the flexor pollicis brevis, abductor pollicis brevis, the tendons would be then in running into that, the um, lateral sesamoid bone over here. And over on the medial side, we had the, ten the double-headed tendon of the adductor pollicis, the, the medial sesamoid bone here at the, uh, at the head of the metacarp metacarpal of your thumb would, would be incorporated into its tendon coming on this way. The only, the, the only hitch to the whole thing, if you notice it says in the notes that the flexor pollicis brevis and the adductor are run into the medial one as well. Okay, that's because, whoops, where'd it go? Come on, had it here somewhere, where'd I put it? Uh, no, going the wrong way, shoot. That's because they get into that controversy as to what this muscle is, whether or not this muscle is a palmer or whether or not it is a head of the, the flexor pollicis brevis. And so the notes indicate that the flexor pollicis brevis also runs into the, me, the medial sesamoid bone, or the medial sesamoid bone is incorporated in its tendon. 
nah, you're not going to you're not going to find this too too often in the notes. When you look for the attachment of the flexor pollicis brevis, you'll have it running into or have the only have the la the lateral sesamoid bone incorporated to its tendon before it attaches to the first phalanx. You you will probably never find a description of this portion of the flexor pollicis brevis and the medial sesamoid bone. Um, that's why it's included in the notes. You can, for our purposes, you can probably, I suggest that you scratch out flexor pollicis brevis because it's just going to be too confusing. So, what it, so the only thing that we'll have running into the medial sesamoid bone will be the adductor. Technically speaking, depending upon how, who you like and who you read, you could also get this configuration. But to be consistent with the way I mentioned it, this I, this I consider to be part of not, not a palmer. I would consider it to be either part of the flexor pollicis brevis or the abductor pollicis brevis, one or the other. They're not sure which one it goes to. So it becomes a little bit too confusing. And I wouldn't even count this one at all. I would simply count the flexor pollicis brevis going over here on the lateral side. All right, disregard that component. It becomes a little bit um, confusing in trying to be able to determine who you, who you like and who you believe. All right. So any questions about what, we're, what we just did? Interphalangeal joints, we had flexing and extending. We still had palmar plates. Metacarpophalangeal joint, we had flexing and extending. We had adducting and abducting. Um, and we had palmar plates and joint, the palmar plates joined by the deep transverse ligament that went across. Uh, at the joint between the carpal metacarpal, uh, we had a lot of movement at the thumb. We had virtually no movement for the second, third, and fourth. And we have a little bit of movement here for the fifth in order that you are allowed to roll your little finger, the metacarpal of your little finger around so that you can oppose your thumb. Between the carpal bones, we had virtually little movement, a little bit of gliding between them, but we did have a relatively significant gap between the proximal row and the distal row. That was our mid-carpal joint, which took part in both flexing and extending of the wrist. And we had the radial carpal joint here, which would take part both in flexing and extending the wrist. And you, once you'll notice that the underside here and the underside of the ulna will be highland cartilage lined, coming around this way. And then we looked at the articulation between the radius and the ulna here with an, uh, a, a fibrocartilage articulating disc from the styloid process of the ulna coming across and attaching to the two margins of the ulnar notch on the radius, helping to continue that radial carpal articulating surface coming across this way. Okay. So that then gives us a look at the, takes us right down to the ends of our fingers. Problems? Anybody got any questions about what we're, the material? No? It's not that, uh, I must admit, it's not that, it's kind of loosely organized here in the back half of it. I should probably make it a little bit more sequential. It's kind of uh, jumps a little bit from place to place. Okay. All right. That's good enough for today. Oh, yeah. Well, we have a question. a synovial um, joint? No. Palmer plates? The, yeah, the, whoops. 
the Palmer plates are going to be, um, they're on the Palmer side, yep, and they're thickenings of the capsule associated. Now this joint, this one, and this one, they're all, all of them are synovial joints with it. Yes, between the metacarpal and the, and the first phalanx and the two interphalangeal joints, yes. Between the carpal bones, yes, as well. And the radial, the radial carpal here as well, and the radial ulnar as well. Yes, there's a disc here between the styloid process and the radius, and that what that does is help to kind of expand that radial carpal um, surface. When we looked at, as an example, when you look at this one, you'll notice that the, the disc is going to help to expand that surface over here. Yep. All right.